create lasting change, inspire others, and make a difference. You have joined the Influencers Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Donaldson, and each week you will hear from distinguished co-hosts and guests as they share insights into impacting our culture from your neighborhood to the nations. Have you ever wondered what it's like to be a true rock star? Well, you're about to hear an incredible story of how Jonathan Kane survived a school building fire as a child to become one of the most prolific songwriters, musicians in the world uh, that has spanned several decades. He's best known as the leader of the band Journey. And I have with me here uh, his better two-thirds, Paula White. Uh, You know Paula White, a prolific speaker, writer, uh, a pastor to the Trump family, and a rock star for Jesus. Paula, welcome to the Influencers Podcast. It's so great to be with you, Dave, and to have John here and to find out what it's really like to be a rock star. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, Jonathan, this is... The bone I got to pick with you, okay? Just, yeah. I got to get it out. Yeah, you know, we had dinner at your house, right? My yes, wife's sir. there. Yes, sir. And I hear, you know, you clean, you know, you, I mean, you wash the dishes, you cook, uh, you write love songs to Paula. Yeah. Thanks a lot. <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, at least I'm going to start writing some love songs. There I, you go. It, it, it works. It's a, well, uh, Paula, it's so good to have you. It's great to be here, and let's just jump into it. Let's and do it. I want to get to know this rock star better. I mm. agree. John, tell us about the band Journey. When did it start, and how did you get involved? Well, Journey started in the 70s, actually, um, as uh, the Golden Gate Rhythm Section, and they were primarily uh, a sort of a fusion rock band like Mahavishnu Orchestra or something. And I was not... Uh, in you know the professional uh, end of the pool as they were I was kind of playing clubs while they came up and I remembered um, seeing the name Journey Uh, I was playing clubs with my brother and then um, they got Steve Perry in 77 and I remember buying the album Infinity and putting it on I was still working at Cal Stereo at that time thinking my goodness this guy has a lovely voice you know and interesting how they've shifted their direction musically you know so they went on to have a platinum record. Um, then they made Evolution, another platinum record. Um, and then I got a breakthrough. I, I got a call from a guy um, that I wrote songs with. He was a British guy and said, the babies are looking for a keyboard player. So I, I took the audition and I ended up getting the job. And I quit Cal Stereo happily. I threw my little vest on the, on the desk and said, I'm out of here. You know? And of course they knew I was gonna leave anyway. Um, it was just a period, you know, where I had to get another job. I was tired of nightclubs at that point. And, and, and God said to me, you know, just write songs. And so I had written this song called Stick to Your Guns, and they heard my song. And, and that's really what got me into the babies. Well, the babies went on the road. They, had, they were already platinum-selling artists on Chrysalis. They had hits like Isn't It Time and Every Time I Think of You. So I was the keyboard player. Uh, I went to um, Germany and Holland it was very exciting. I didn't, I didn't make any money. They didn't have any money. It turns out they were in the hole about a million dollars uh, in debt. So, you know, we get uh, an offer to open up for this band Journey. Ah, the album I, I like so much, the, the singer I thought was so good. And so I, I go into the arena and hear a sound check and they're just as good as their album. You know, they're amazing. I'm just, 
and I had my roller skates on at that point. I, I would bring them into these uh, big arenas and just skate around trying to get a feel for the place and get loose. And it was fun because uh, they had those you know big tracks to go around. So I was listening to their sound check thinking, you know, if I was a keyboard player, I think I'd play a little differently than this guy's playing. I didn't really, you know, get it totally. Um, I thought I'd love to get it. So I started watching them. We opened up for them. Uh, they were watching me, and I was watching them. Let's put it that way. They, they had their eye on me, and, I, and I'd always see one of them. And I had this little keyboard solo I would do, and they were always – one of them would come out and check me out. Long story short, we do a 40-city uh, tour with them, and then uh, – I think it was right around the time John Lennon was shot. Um, we uh, we had a break, and then John hurt his knee somewhere. Uh, one of the our singer, he pulled his uh, he got stuck on a cable or something and tore his ACL. So we were down, and then I get a phone call uh, in 1979, the summer of '79. John, you want to join our band Journey? You're a, you're our new keyboard player. I'm like, what? When's the audition? You know. I'm in L.A., and they're in San Francisco, and they said, um, you know, just come up, make the album with us in, uh, in January. We're going to call it Escape. Just come up. You know, you already, you already passed the audition. You know, so I dropped the phone. I'm like, I couldn't believe it. I said, this is unbelievable. I'm in Journey. So I had to call everybody in the babies and tell them, I think I'm joining this band. And my, my big call was to our lead singer, John, because he had given me my, my break, and I wanted to make sure he before I said yes that he would – give me his blessings and he did and he said I'm, I'm going to quit the babies we're too far in debt I'm going to go solo um, it's really great for you John you should take it so I did I had to call everybody and, and say I'm leaving and so I went um, up to San Francisco with a little truck and uh, my German shepherd and my ex-wife and they got us this little place in in the city um, and I made the escape album in 1981 with Journey never playing really um a show with them or anything, not really playing with the band. That was the first time I had played with them was in the studio. And then it turned out they wanted me to write songs with them, you know, and I'm like, and then Steve Perry asked me if I had any ballads. And I said, yeah, um, I have this song called Open Arms. I wrote it back, you know, when I got married to my, my ex-wife, um, Tony, and I played it for him and he goes, oh, we need to finish that because I didn't have any lyrics for the verse. And... Um, that afternoon, we finished the song. We brought it in, and it was the biggest-selling uh, single uh, Journey's ever had. Mm. Uh, often listed as one of the influential power ballads of the mm. decade, you know, open arms. And um, so that was the beginning of, of Journey. And, and so they went, you know, Steve Perry was still influencing mightily with his uh, soul R&B kind of rock uh, style. And he was like really the architect for the blueprint of the sound of Journey. He was very much uh, an under the hood, nuts and bolts kind of uh, guy. He, he played bass, he played drums. He understood how all the pieces worked in a song. Loved radio. When I met him, we, we realized that we loved the same songs. We loved the same, we just, and, and our, our goal was to get on the radio as much as possible. You know, that was, so I immediately related to this guy. We grew up listening to soul music and Three Dog Night and Gary Puckett and the Union Gap. And we had so much in common musically that we just, I knew God had put me there. I knew that there was no accident why I was in the room writing songs with this guy. And, and uh, it was funny when I was in LA trying to make my own 
recordings and being a solo artist, I got dropped from Warner Brothers eventually uh, after, after one album. My guitar player looked at me and said, what are you going to do now, John? And I said, I'm going to find a really amazing singer to sing my songs. <laughs> and so God sent me two great singers, John Waite from The Babies, uh, and I wrote with him. That was really the beginning of, of my grooming, you know, like of rock and roll. He taught me rock and roll. He taught me the swagger. He showed me the business. He, he told me what to say in interviews and things like that. Um, I really, you know, and <laughs> he still ends up in my, my wacky dreams. Like, I, there's John Waite in my dream again. Anyway, but then Steve Perry comes along, and now he's this guy that can soar. You know, he has this amazing tenor voice. And I, I reckon he's probably one of the greatest arena singers to ever hit the stage is Steve Perry. Um, and, and back in the days, I was just, I knew that, um, and my father prophesied this the whole time. When I was eight years old taking accordion lessons, he would tell his friends, they'd say, what is he going to do with those accordion lessons, Lenny? And my father would say, he's going to be a, a famous musician and play for 10,000 people a night, and he's going to write songs. And I, had, I was just, you know, this little eight-year-old kid, and I'd receive it, and I said, I get embarrassed, you know, my father saying this, but he was dead certain, you know. And, and all through the struggles of, of, you know, trying to be a, a solo act and, uh, singer-songwriter and all the troubles I had and rejection, he kept saying, it's just around the corner. <clears throat> it's just, you know, stick to your guns. Don't stop believing, John. Wow. Well, uh, you need to give us some of the stats Yeah. on, you know, how many albums have been yeah. sold. I can tell you, you know, I grew up in the Bay Area, yeah. as you know. I mean, the, the, the two most popular songs as a kid, Amazing Grace and Lights. Right. When right. the lights right. go down in the city. Right. See, it, when Steve Perry retired, you should have given me a chance. Come on. I, I was impressed there, Dave. That was good. <laughs> well, I was you know, like, we're, we're of one of the We're one of the rare bands that had back-to-back uh, records like Escape and Frontiers in 1981 and 1983 collectively almost sold 10 million each. So we had four top 40 singles. Um, so that would be eight top 40 singles in three years. Uh, we were close to 100 million albums worldwide. Uh, and that some of them aren't even accounted for because SoundScan didn't come out till 1989. You know, so a lot of the records. Um, that means all your best hits were before SoundScan even got that's them. That's right. That's and right. so when you look at downloads, yeah. uh, Don't Stop Believing, which we'll get to, is over a billion. Only you and Queen with Rhapsody have ever done over a billion downloads yeah. uh, for the number one classic rock. But when you look at that, it's it's pretty epic to see that when you think about Escape and all your really trial by well trial by fire was that bef- that was before eighty mm-hmm. nine all of these great hits that no you guys trial by fire was, was 90, 95. So 90. what was right after Escape? Uh, Frontiers. Frontiers. Mm-hmm. That's right. All your best uh, selling albums. Journey was selling two hundred fifty thousand units a, a week. week. So mm-hmm. those were ne- never even scanned. So Incredible. when you're looking at a hundred million, you're thinking about doubling that at least. You know, and we've uh, mm-hmm. we we've got to. Uh, you know, and, and you know, Steve Perry retired um, actually in '87, so he hasn't been with the band since '87. Uh, and you know, Arnell's been singing now with us 14 years. He's no longer the new guy. You know? mm. uh, but Journey, the last tour with Def Leppard, we played for over a million people. Well, this is an interesting point because 
What it says, John, is that the music outlasts even decades, et cetera. Because I think back about, Dave, I was same thing, Bay Area for just a little stint, uh, same kind of time period. But your your songs were classic, and that has a lot to do with, A, I believe God's thing, uh, you know, purpose in your life, your father, how you think as a musician, how you write everything else, but also that it surpassed the greatest voice, one of the greatest voices. I mean, who gets to survive that? It's I mean, true. In almost anything. Well, God's always had his hand that, on this band. Hey, yeah. Here it is. Glee gets nominated for a Grammy before you guys tell about this because you were so upset that Glee might win. Yeah, don't gr- stop believing. Well, they did a, a Grammy version. for "Don't Stop Believing." They did a real, a real cute version of "Don't Stop Believing," uh, and uh, on the TV show, the producer was a fan of ours, and he chose "Don't Stop Believing" for the lead, um, lead-in kind of song. So when Glee first came out, that was the big tune, and that year uh, they got nominated for a Grammy award. You know, and I went to the Grammys. Um, and I was praying they didn't win. You know, I thought, God, you can't let this happen because we, we never even got a nod for that, you know, for the, the album or anything. And uh, I remember Train had uh, Drops of Jupiter and um, Pat Monahan, who's a friend of mine, I was texting him going, I'm praying for you, brother. I'm praying that you guys win. <laughs> Please win, you know. And when they finally won, uh, Train won that, uh, that Grammy, I breathed a sigh of relief. Thank you, Lord. You know, and then of course, you know but why? Because you, you guys were nominated for a Grammy, right? But John not, Lennon not won. Not for that song. Yeah, I know. But John Lennon won, right? Yoko, tell the tell oh, the story. Oh, that was that was for when you love a woman, um, and that wasn't. Um, yeah, that was. I think the American Music Awards, though. I think that you know we had been nominated only for the best sounding album, Escape, and they gave it to somebody else. But um, American Music Awards nominated several times they gave one away to willie nelson for best pop album because he sang somewhere over the rainbow you know and meanwhile escape you know sold millions and millions and millions of copies and do you mean that before 2020 that there was actually political in the music and hollywood i'm absolutely (laughs) busted well it was cool to hate i was hoping for a news flash i don't like i cannot believe this rolling stone hated journey and they went out of their way to diss us uh, during those years. Um, they went as far as calling us faceless. Um, Why? Because y'all were just too pop and melodic. We we just you know they couldn't stand because we didn't sound like REM or something. I don't know, but it was um, it was cool to hate Journey back in those days. And meanwhile, we were just selling out arenas and going platinum and with every album. And so I just say you know those that can do, those that can't review. <laughs> I, well, think, I think there's a story right there. Yep, That needs to be another show, mm-hmm. okay, because, Jonathan, you've shared this uh, a couple times. I've heard your testimony of how your life, music, ministry was shaped by a tragedy. Yes. Uh, how you escaped a mm. school fire. And, you know, unfortunately, I'm going to ask you to give the abbreviated version yeah. of it. Well, it's kind of ashes for beauty, isn't it? Um what happened was on December 1st in 1958, uh, there's a Catholic school called Our Lady of the Angels that was right next to the church. It was a parish of about 6,000 uh, Catholics, and my father uh, was a devout Catholic and wanted me in that school. So I was in third grade, and basically around uh, 20, 220, right before school was out, we smelled smoke. And um, 
we were escorted out. I knew it wasn't a fire drill because we didn't do fire drills at 2.20. They were in the morning. Uh, it was very cold out. We didn't have time to get our jackets. We went out there, and I knew something was dead wrong. You know, you could there was a still in the air. Um, the fire escape wasn't coming down. We didn't know why. Turned out the sister forgot the key. Chandler had to go get the key. But on, on the back side of the school, um, there was chaos going on, and we, had not, we weren't looking at that side, but the roof had started on fire. Someone, uh, one of the, turned out one of the students was, uh, was an arsonist. He turned out to be a pyromaniac, started the, this bin of papers on fire. There was a cold intake pipe that went up to the roof, and so the, the building was burning from inside the roof down. So all of the tar paper on top, uh, you know, went, went ablaze, um, and smoke filled the second floor, I mean, black smoke, you know, and, and it started pouring out the windows and kids started, you know, poking their heads out at this point. And I'm standing there still in fire drill position, you know, um, and uh, where's the fire trucks, you know? Well, it turned out that this school had no fire alarm hooked to or wired to any, you know, there was two miles away, there was a fire truck there, but somebody said that there was a problem with calling the fire department. Uh, so they had to come from downtown. They didn't show up till 10 minutes to three and the building had already been ablaze and turned out the backside of the, I, I ran around to the backside of school and kids were jumping out of windows onto the asphalt, you know. Um, the school was too high. It was two and a half stories, so none of the ladders that the neighbors brought to try to save the kids worked. So it wasn't until the fire department finally got there um, 91 children perished and three nuns on that day. Of course, many died from burns later. Um, and if I would have been born, uh, you know, in Jan before January, I mean, January is a cutoff. My birthday's in February, so I was an old, older third grader, you know. Uh, my mother had taken me there to sign me up. I would have been on that second floor. Mm -hmm. But God saved me. But just having me born in February. I, I didn't realize that. But um, so it was at the biggest uh, school fire uh, in American history. The whole world came uh, for the inquiry, uh, you know, sort of investigation. Um, they wanted to know. And so Our Lady of the Angels School became a model for fire safety in schools. And everything that went wrong that day was never repeated again. So you know, what the enemy bad, uh, brought for bad, God made for good. And, and those kids that perished, I feel like, you know, God required great sacrifice for great change sometimes, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, it took me a long time. I, I was haunted into my adult life. What, what do I do with these kids dying? I mean, I had my fourth grade textbooks were from a kid that perished from upstairs. Mm -hmm. And I looked at my mother, what am I to do with these books with Mark's name in it? She said, dedicate your, your fourth grade year to him. And I made straight A's, you know. Uh, eventually I had my father uh, get me out of that school because all I could see was death. All I could smell was smoke. And, and it was a brand new building. I could see fire, you know, I was, I was haunted by the thing. Um, on that very same ground, they, they rebuilt the school and my father moved me um, to a public school and I was able to, you know, eventually get away from that neighborhood. That neighborhood just really went down in a hurry, um, badly, you know, but a lot of the kids stayed. And to this day, we still have our commemorative 
uh, mass. I went back to that church that had been boarded up for 25 years, and the uh, Dominican priest had saved it, um, restored it with a $2.5 million makeover. And if that's not evidence of God you know, restoring, and the evidence of God was there, and the, the, ser- the sermon that uh, the cardinal gave was one of grace, and he explained to us that, you know, under these kind of tragedies, God brings an umbrella of grace for all. And I don't have to tell you, I was weeping, you know, <laughs> taking mm-hmm. communion. And, and um, I got to sing. I wrote a song, um, and I sing the song. I've been there like two or three times. We go to visit the cemetery where a lot of the bodies were, uh, were, were enshrined. Um, and... Uh, we still get together. The fire department from Chicago still shows up every December and, and gives a scholarship away to some young deserving kid and, and as we honor uh, the lives that were lost uh, in the fire. John, for someone who's gone through so much, and you write about this in your book, Don't Stop Believing, from the fire to being kicked to the curb, as you said, working in Cal Stereo, to your father who believed in you, as you've talked about, who had a seventh grade education and was a hardworking man as a printer who put that uh, accordion on layaway. You wrote a pretty epic song along with Steve Perry and Neil Sean that has become, as we dealt with the number one downloaded ever, Don't Stop Believing. Uh, What inspired that? What was the story behind Don't Stop Believing? And why do you think it has transcended so many generations? Um, Well, first of all, it starts with my father's belief in me and, you know, the rough days I had in in Los Angeles. I would call him for a loan and he he would sort of coach me off the ledge. Don't come back to Chicago. Stay the course. Stick to your guns. I wrote a song called Stick to Your Guns. That's the song that got me into the babies. My father, once again, prophesying over me. And then, you know, uh, don't stop believing, he said to me one night. Um, And I said man, I'm just tired of asking you for money, Dad. And he, don't stop believing, John. So I started doodling this, don't stop believing, in the lyric book I had. And I kept my lyric books with me. And as I went to the Bay Area to write with Steve Perry and Neil Sean, um, you know, I, it was there with me. And I had, um, <laughs> you know, they said, well, we have one more song. Uh, we, need, we need another song. And Steve looked at me and said, you know that lyric book, you have something in there. Go look in your book, you know. So I went, Okay, there it is, dads. And I thought, I said, Holy Spirit, <laughs> give me a melody. <laughs> give me something to sing. So I, I wrote the chorus that night. It was an instant, an instant. I mean, it was like five minutes. I saw that, and I, I came up. I said, Steve Perry would sing this. So I brought it in, and, um, you know, it just flowed, you know, and, and he knew exactly what to do with it. Neil knew what to do with it. It was this improv, wonderful day. Of, of, so we had this chorus and this uh, melody, and then I went to Steve's house to write the lyrics the next day. And we had this cassette, and I put it on, and Neil had this part that sounded like a train. Ticka, 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 ticka. I said, that sounds like a train. You know, I said, why don't we get a train in the song? I like the Midnight Train to Georgia. And I looked at him, I said, how about the Midnight Train going anywhere? And then he goes, yeah, like Jack and Diane, you know, small town, boy, you know, girl, city boy. I'm like... Yeah, and then I said, well, that's a great idea. And they they meet each other, and then I said, and you know what, they probably go to L.A. I said, I, I live in Laurel Canyon, and right down there was Sunset Boulevard. I used to go down there on Friday nights, 
and there'd be this menagerie of people from all walks of life, all trying to make it, all hustling each other, you know, <laughs> record companies and, you know, uh, whatever. They had the Rocky Horror Show was going on at the Roxy and, you know, uh, Van Halen was playing at the Starwood and all, all this crazy stuff. It was, it was an explosion of music. Rock and roll was being born right on Sunset Boulevard. Let's do it about that up and down the boulevard, that, that whole scene. And he, he, he went with me completely. And he saw the movie with me. And I said, the movie never ends. And he goes, it goes on and on and on. I said, that's right. Mm. And so mm. the song ended up being about me wanting, and, and, he, and you know, he struggled too trying to become a rock star. We both wanted in the business and we, we just, we're looking in from the outside. We were looking in from the outside. And that song is about giving permission to dream. You're not stuck where you are. Just get on that midnight train going anywhere. And it's, and it's funny because we got a lot of flack about South Detroit. There is no really a place called South Detroit. So when radio people would ask me, I said, no, that's an imaginary place. South Detroit is, is, is like, like big fish. It doesn't exist. It's a fantasy place, <laughs> you know, and talk my way out of it. Um, but that song, you know, there was something about it. Um, the kids... As we went back out on the road, time and time, the kids would all swarm the stage. They would come to the front of the stage like they heard something magic, like they wanted to, to get really close to the band. It was very mm. surreal the way they would, mm. you know, and there was just younger people uh, that had waited till they heard that song, and then they wanted to be right next to us, you know. So it uh, turned out to be quite a, it was like Thomas the Train. It keeps on giving. It's, the, it's just timeless. Well, I think there's a lot of people that are, drawing close right now uh, I hope so. to this podcast as they listen to you. And some of these people have stopped believing. Mm-hmm. I mean, their marriage is unraveling. Perhaps their business is on teetering on bankruptcy. They've been dealing with a, uh, a sickness. You know, perhaps it's terminal. What would you say to that person? I would say look to God. Look to God for strength. I mean, um, even when my darkest times, I mean, I've seen miracles happen, you know, when you let God take over. And, you know, and if you're in pain of any kind, um, you know, Jesus is the place to go. It's got to be Jesus because that, that is our key to getting to the Holy Spirit. You pray to Jesus, you know, in the name of the Father, pray to Jesus. And, and all my tribulations, um, you know, I knew my father led me to Jesus. Um, and, and when I, I would, I got injured a couple times on, on horses, I broke my ribs and I realized that the only place I could turn was Jesus, you know, to, to, to take this pain away from me. And, and, and he did. And I was able to survive some pretty horrific, you know, nights <laughs> trying to sleep. And I, there's no, you know, when you break ribs, there's nothing they can do for you. And I wasn't going to take pain pills. I was just going to pray to Jesus. And I wrote a song only in the arms of Jesus uh, during that time, you know? And I would say that, um, you know, I've seen miracles and I believe in miracles and I believe in breakthroughs. Um, and I've seen unbelievable things happen, you know? So never lose hope, but know that you don't know and, and just, you know, surrender, pour out to Jesus. Amen. John, why don't you, uh, why don't we end in prayer? Why don't you pray over everyone? Uh, Father God, 
I just uh, thank thank you thank you for this fellowship with Dave and Paula. Uh, I thank you for my voice being heard over the airwaves that I would be able to magnify and glorify your son's name. Um, that you would bring healing uh, to all that are listening. That that you would bring a wisdom. That you would bring a certainty. You would bring a calm to anxiety. Uh, that that you would bring hope to those that are hopeless and, and let them know, let them know the miracles that you're capable of. Those that are listening, um, that are wavering in their faith, Father God, let them know you are the true rock. You are our salvation. You are the, you are the foundation of our very, very being. And um, we just ask you... Um, for grace today, we ask you for uh, healing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I hope you enjoy listening to Influencers on the Charisma Podcast Network. Join us next week for another thought-provoking episode. And remember to use your influence to move people closer to Jesus. Jesus.